A warning to listeners. This episode contains explicit language and descriptions of sexual violence. I'm Amy Britton, and this is Canary, an investigative podcast from The Washington Post. Chapter 6. You can always have the last word. Uh, Dear Judge Morrison, I hope that this letter finds you well. My name is Amy Britton, and I'm an investigative reporter from the Washington Post. Last year, I authored an article about Lauren Clark, a sexual assault victim whose case you handled in D.C. Superior Court. After months of reporting, I was finally ready to reach out to Judge Morrison. So I was sitting at my desk typing a letter to him. I wrote that, quote, Carol Griffin, a 60-year-old woman from Birmingham, Alabama, alleges that you sexually assaulted her when she was a teenager. Griffin has said this assault happened in the mid-1970s on the Morrison family property near Marion, Virginia. I didn't include the full details of Carol's allegations. I wanted to ask him about those sensitive details in person, so I requested an interview. As I told him in the letter, quote, I understand that the story is not complete without the chance to speak with you in extensive detail. And then I put the letter in the mail. What are you thinking? It's a pretty serious letter to send to someone. Um, I'm just thinking of kind of like the ripple effects that happen after you send something like this. And that's not something that I take lightly. A lot of times, as an investigative reporter, people tend to ask me, how do you know when the reporting is over? How do you know when you're done or if you've got more work to do? That's a tough question to answer. Any reporter at The Washington Post might give you a different response. That's because it truly depends on the story. There's no playbook for reporting on sensitive matters. You always have to be open to the possibility that new information can lead you in a new direction. That when you think a story is over, it might not be. There's a tendency to want these types of stories to end with a clear and satisfying resolution. For Carol, for Lauren, for Judge Morrison, for you, the listener, and for me, the reporter, to feel that I've reached an endpoint that's not murky or convoluted. What you're going to hear takes you through the final stages of reporting this story and the uncertainties, the difficulties, and the frustrations. I'm going to talk you through exactly what we heard from Judge Morrison. That's not the only unfinished business here. Earlier in this series, you heard about our effort to find all of the cases handled by Judge Morrison over 40 years. We ultimately surfaced over 4,000 case numbers. But then I still had to figure out how many of these were related to sexual offenses. And we wanted to know if we could say anything definitive about his sentencing record on sexual crimes. Did he go lighter on these crimes than other judges? Did he make comments in court that could shed light on his thinking? 
So for months, I went to the courthouse with a list of those thousands of case numbers. I brought a huge ream of printing paper and I would sit in a windowless room for hours, typing in each case number and checking to see if it was related to a sexual crime. If it wasn't, I would cross it off my list. But if it was, I would take a highlighter and mark the case and look for documents. In some cases, the court system keeps old case jackets in a filing room. And to get one of those files, you have to stand in line and hand over your driver's license for safekeeping. Then they give you the case folder and they let you flip through it. I had the help of a student journalist, Madeline Davison, for many hours of this work. And we ran into quite a few barriers. Some of the case dockets had very little information, not even the charges or conviction. They were a black hole. Other cases had been sealed, meaning that we weren't allowed to look at the case documents. Other cases were so old that the docket sheet was handwritten, usually in cursive that had long ago faded away, leaving key details indecipherable. And for a long time, the Superior Court had a policy in place to get rid of audio tapes of court hearings after 10 years. That meant that I couldn't order court transcripts for most of these cases. So, unfortunately, I can't deliver any sweeping analysis to definitively say how often Judge Morrison departs from median sentences. Instead, the best I can offer are case studies. Specific examples of victims and the accused who have stood before him in his courtroom. Altogether, I was able to identify about 200 cases involving sexual crimes that Judge Morrison handled over a 40-year span. Over half of these cases were minor offenses like prostitution, lewd conduct, people exposing themselves in public. And then there were over a dozen cases of misdemeanor sexual abuse. Like the case of Jairo Cruz, the chef who sexually assaulted Lauren Clark. There were also more serious offenses, felony crimes, those of sexual abuse of children, sodomy, rape. I found at least five cases where he gave more than five years of prison time for sexual crimes. In a 1990 rape case, the perpetrator also broke the victim's nose and blackened both of her eyes. Judge Morrison gave this man a 10 to 30 year prison sentence. In 1988, he oversaw the case of a serial rapist in the district who had broken into women's homes. This man ended up pleading guilty to two counts of rape, among other charges. Several of the victims wrote to Judge Morrison to ask him for the maximum sentence, life imprisonment. What Morrison ultimately decided was to craft a minimum sentence of 18 years served in prison, taking into account time earned for good behavior. I found five cases in which Judge Morrison gave no jail time to adults convicted of felony sex crimes against minors, and in one case, an intellectually disabled adult. You heard about one of these cases in episode four when I told you about the local school teacher, the one who engaged in sex acts with five of his male teenage students and was convicted in 1981 of multiple charges of sodomy. Judge Morrison suspended a prison term and put the teacher on probation. In 1980, a man was convicted of taking indecent liberties with a minor after he offered a 10-year-old girl a dollar to touch her vagina. 
Judge Morrison suspended a prison term and instead put this man on probation. In 1984, a social worker at a school for behaviorally troubled youth was convicted on two counts of taking indecent liberties with minors. This man had engaged in sex acts with two 15-year-old boys and paid one of them up to $20 to pose nude for photos. Judge Morrison suspended a jail sentence and instead put the social worker on probation. In 1987, a man admitted to raping his 13-year-old stepdaughter. Judge Morrison gave this man a nine-month halfway house sentence. And in 1988, Judge Morrison handled one of the most high-profile sex crimes in the District of Columbia. Six residents of a D.C. home for intellectually disabled adults told a local TV station that the homeowner had sexually abused them. One of the residents told police that the owner had forced his fingers and penis into his rectum, and a doctor found evidence of a sexual violation. The owner pleaded guilty to one charge of assault with intent to sodomize. Judge Morrison sentenced him to probation. I don't know the reasoning behind these sentences because the transcripts from these cases are long gone. And to be frank, I was frustrated about that. It felt like there were insurmountable barriers to scrutinizing a judge's record. As it turns out, Judge Morrison himself has written about this issue. His thoughts are in an essay he wrote titled, Being a Good Judge. This essay has been suggested reading for all new judges in the D.C. courthouse, and it was updated in 2020. It's about the lack of accountability for judges and how to become a better judge. The voice you're about to hear is Bishop Sand, one of the producers of Canary, reading some excerpts. People shouldn't have to worry about what facts are already in your head, how they got there, and how they will be used. You must be careful not to allow your particular, unique life experiences to inappropriately inform your fact-finding. You must be like a young person, recently arrived in the big city, by a bus from rural Iowa. At the same time, he wrote that his own views on jail had affected his decisions on the bench. On mass incarceration, he asked, How do trial judges everywhere, and in our courthouse, contribute to this problem? How can you do things differently? In recent years, I've begun to rethink and substantially revise my approach to deciding when I feel I must order it. He described the overall lack of scrutiny in the justice system. Almost all of your decisions will never be formally reviewed. He pointed out that there's no oversight from lawyers who argue cases before judges. There exists no formal mechanism for contemporaneous lawyer review of our work. Or from the people who have their cases heard. Again, no real help. With the possible rare exception of a letter to Chambers or a comment to the media, litigants seldom muster the courage and persistence to forge a way to complain or give a compliment. Or from the press. Somehow, many judges have grown reflexively suspicious and fearful of reporters. Unsurprisingly, therefore, local reporters have little contact with us. It is no wonder that many reporters seem to lack understanding of any depth as to just what we judges are about when we issue rulings. Additionally, in Washington, the press is seldom in need of news stories. Perhaps partly for that reason, you mostly get a free pass and usually work under the radar. And the public doesn't have a way to challenge a judge either. 
We have not given the public any sort of analytic framework with which to critically assess our work. We spent months attempting to scrutinize Judge Morrison's legal career, his decisions, and ultimately his handling of other sexual assault cases. And here was this essay, in his own words, basically saying that it was a fool's errand, that we couldn't do this work because we didn't have the data, the knowledge, or the insight to do so. He wrote that judges were responsible for policing themselves, perhaps through peer observations or informal critiques. This absence of any broad scrutiny, Judge Morrison ultimately concluded that it was inherently problematic. Do not overlook the powerfully corrosive effect of doing a job where every day, in every way, you can always have the last word. I got the first word back from Judge Morrison not long after I mailed him the letter asking for an interview. His response was just a few sentences, and he sent it to me by email. I'm going to have Bishop read it for you. I acknowledge sexual touching of Miss Griffin, for which I expressed my deep regret to the family several decades ago. I will have no further comment. Sincerely, Truman A. Morrison III. Judge Morrison admitted to sexual touching of Carol, but there was no further detail in his statement, and I wasn't sure exactly what sexual touching he was admitting to. I wrote back and asked him to reconsider agreeing to an interview. I thought maybe some time and space might help. I also wondered what this admission would lead to. Would there be consequences? Were there any legal implications? And what would it mean for his career? Could a judge stay on the bench after admitting to something like this? Those were all questions that I still needed to explore. More immediately, though, I wondered what his response would mean for Carol. So I called her. If we truly believe the truth will set us free, then he would, be, he would have the opportunity to share this experience with, as a perpetrator, you know, as somebody who can come clean and and contribute to the healing that needs to take place for men and women. She said she was relieved just to hear that he hadn't denied it. To say, yes, I admit to sexual touching of Carol. That to me says there's something hopeful about him. There's something spiritually in the right place about him. He's saying, look, I'm not going to fight this. It's true. And that impresses me about him. And that's the thing that immediately makes me want to protect him. It immediately scares me and makes me want to say, should I not have done any of this? I kind of hear my mother's voice of saying he was, he was contrite. I know he was apologetic and that I've somehow ruined his life. Shay wants to say something. Huh? Hey, Shay. I, I want to mark that his response makes me mad. Really? Yes. Why? It's like throwing your hands up. 
and saying, well, I don't know what else I can do. And I think that he, as a judge especially, should understand that that's not how justice works. Mm. You don't get to just say, oh, my bad, mm-hmm. and everybody move on. That's mm-hmm. not how justice works. About 10 days after that phone call with Carol, Judge Truman Morrison's name was stripped from the D.C. Superior Court website. There was no explanation of why he was no longer listed as a judge. And Carol said she heard from her family members that Truman had suddenly retired. Later, I wanted to see if I could confirm this information. And I did. There's a commission in D.C. that handles all personnel matters related to judges. It's called the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. And the executive director of this commission told me that Judge Morrison sent a retirement letter on March 1st, 2020, just two days after Judge Morrison gave me his statement. I've asked him several times now, but the commission has not given me a copy of this letter. So I don't know what he said to them. And at D.C. Superior Court, I asked for a comment from the chief judge about Judge Morrison's sudden departure, but a spokeswoman declined that request. Right after his retirement, the world suddenly changed. We were now in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, and I still hadn't heard anything more from Judge Morrison. In an ideal situation, I would be able to sit down and speak with him for hours to ask him what he was acknowledging and to ask him if the incidents that Carol described had affected his sentencing decisions. But he already said that he was done communicating with me, and I wanted to respect his wishes. But I felt I owed it to him, out of fairness, to understand him more fully. So I decided to reach out to people who knew him well, his friends, his law clerks, his former colleagues, to ask them about his character and his reputation as a judge. When I started making these phone calls, I didn't want anyone to be surprised by how their remarks were included in this podcast. So I told them a brief summary of the allegations. I spoke to Hannah Jopling, who's now an adjunct professor at Hunter College and is married to Bob Kaiser, the former managing editor of The Washington Post. Hannah used to run a nonprofit that worked on sentencing alternatives to incarceration. And through that work, in the 1980s, she got to know Judge Morrison very well. And then through mutual friends, we, my husband and I were invited for dinner um, and met, you know, became socially acquainted with him um, and have stayed in touch, you know, since then. I spoke to Norman Schneider, an attorney who served as Judge Morrison's law clerk in the 80s. In general, you know, although it was a very intense year and we were probably together with each other more than he was together with anybody else. And I spoke to Nikki Lotze, an attorney who was a clerk for Judge Morrison in the 90s. It was the second job that I had straight out of law school. They all said he was kind and generous with his time. Yeah, he was, well, um, he was, he's a very generous, big-hearted person um, from my perspective. My first impression was that he was somebody that I wanted to work for, that he had a demeanor that made me think that he was probably a good judge. 
and they said he was thorough and thoughtful, especially when it came to sentencing defendants. I found him to be one of the most thoughtful judges that I appeared before because he took sentencing very seriously. So he was known as a light sentencer generally, I would say. There were other people in the courthouse who were much heavier sentencers. To me, he seemed, you know, pretty fair. He's definitely a person who was concerned with um, treatment and rehabilitation. I asked if they had ever seen or heard of any inappropriate behavior by Judge Morrison. Um, Just that I've never seen him do anything that was inappropriate towards a woman or me. Never, no. I mean, he was never inappropriate, um, nor did I see him, you know, spending every day, working day with him be inappropriate with anybody else. No, I, I, I mean, I, I certainly don't, don't know of anything. Norman even gave me an example of Judge Morrison's high standard of professional ethics. I know that judges back then, maybe they still do, had special license plates that would have allowed them to park in illegal spots. And I know sometimes we'd go to lunch, and if it were me, I would have been very tempted to take that illegal spot rather than circle the block for another 10 minutes because we're on a time deadline. And he insisted that he would never take advantage of of that kind of thing because he didn't think that judges should be elevated in that way and get special dispensation. I also spoke to Eleanor Randolph. She's a close friend of Judge Morrison's and a former member of the New York Times editorial board. Eleanor did not agree to be interviewed, but she sent me a statement by email. She wrote that she feared this story would damage the reputation of Judge Morrison. And she said by publishing this story, it, quote, risks making the Me Too movement look less about justice and more about revenge. I also want you to hear part of my extended discussion with Hannah Jopling, one of Judge Morrison's close friends that you just heard from. We exchanged several emails in advance of our conversation. And when I spoke to her, I did not give Carol's name, but I did describe Carol's account that Truman Morrison had sexually assaulted her when she was 16. Okay, well, um, uh, it's certainly a troubling um, experience. uh, But what perplexes me is why 40 years later she's, um, you know, seeking publicity with the Washington Post and not therapy to resolve any things that are still obviously, I guess, or not obviously, but maybe still troubling her um, is, you know, what I, I'd want to say about that. It's not the Truman that I know at all. Um, and I, I've not heard any any kind of allegations like this at all about him. Um ever since I've known him, which I guess is in starting in the early 80s, 1980. Okay. You said that perhaps this woman would be better served going to therapy rather than seeking publicity. And that... Um, I didn't Martin- say it like that. I said that I'm perplexed that she has chosen to not seek therapy, which I'm assuming, but I don't know, that she may need at this point or may need more of or something. And She, and is, she is in therapy. I just wanted to clarify that. And she has been in therapy for um, decades at this point for mm-hmm. 
this incident. But I guess mm-hmm. I was more, I, I more wanted to follow up on, on the publicity point. Um, I mm-hmm. guess my question is, uh, how do you, how do you generally feel about women who are, are speaking out publicly about sexual assault? Well, I think um, I, it depends on each case. Just as the kind of work that I did before judges, each case you need to know a lot about what um, what the circumstances were. What I'm not trying to defend him or blame her. I'm trying to stay neutral here because mm-hmm. that's kind of the way I feel. But I've, in general, that un- unless you know what the circumstances. Yes, I I do believe that in some companies in some places women have not been protected or in the the military that we're reading about that women are not being uh, taken seriously and at universities in some places they're not being taken they're not protected and they're not being you know their their um complaints uh are not are not being listened to correctly so when there is no other recourse, then I uh, and they're still in that place, then I think that it's probably there. The only thing they can do to to stop it, but to publicize this after forty years is just perplexes me. That's all. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to damn her or to damn Truman. I'm trying to just say that's kind of my reaction. But not everyone who knew Judge Morrison felt this way. Norman, his former law clerk, has spent years in court representing girls and women who are suing men for claims of sexual assault. Um, I know how hard it is for victims to come forward with allegations against powerful men. And I totally understand why sexual assault abuse would simmer under the surface for years and affect the victim in ways that the perpetrator might never understand. Uh, Girls and women are to be commended completely for their courage of coming forward. Um, Because even today, when victims come forward, they're not believed if it's against a powerful person and they have to go through hell to make people understand the truth of what they're saying. I'm, I'm hoping, and I, I think from knowing Judge Morrison as I did, that I'm pretty confident he's suffering from his his errors. Um, but that's not an excuse, and it's probably not an adequate punishment for having done what he did. After doing these interviews, I had a much better sense of how people felt about Judge Morrison. I also gained valuable insight into how some people view issues of sexual abuse and when they think it's right to come forward and when they think it's not. 
For months now, Carol had spoken of this overwhelming fear that by sharing her story, she would ruin Judge Morrison's life and career, all because she felt compelled to speak out. But Carol told me that she did not have an opinion about whether Judge Morrison should keep his job. She also said she had no intention to go to the police or pursue any civil action against him. But as a reporter, I felt I needed to better understand what legal consequences there could be. He admitted to sexual touching. So decades later, could he be criminally prosecuted for this? Because once this story goes public, this could be completely out of Carol's hands. I did some of my own legal research, and I found that in Virginia, there are no statute of limitations for felony crimes. But I couldn't figure out what criminal charges were on the books back in 1976. And I didn't even know if this account would be considered a felony. So I reached out to an expert. So my name is Chuck Slimp. Uh, I serve as Commonwealth's attorney for Wise County and the city of Norton, Virginia. The uh, Commonwealth's attorney is the equivalent of district attorney in other states. Chuck Slimp is the Commonwealth's attorney in a county about an hour and a half away from where Carol said she was assaulted. I told Chuck about the specific details of Carol's allegation without naming Carol or naming Truman Morrison. I told him that she had been 16 years old and sleeping when she said she awoke to find a man's fingers penetrating her vagina. And Chuck did some research for me about sexual assault laws in Virginia. He looked into what existed then, in 1976, versus what exists now. Well, I, got, I was fascinated by it because I kept running into roadblocks. I'm thinking, oh, surely, come on, there's got to be a, a crime here. I mean, I know it's a crime now, but there's got to be something. Chuck said if the account that Carol gave happened today, there are two clear criminal charges. Number one, the most serious would be object sexual penetration under 18267.2. Uh, and that's the um, the unclassified felony that carries up to life in prison. The second crime that we could charge today, and you could charge them both, is uh, 182-67.3, and that's aggravated sexual battery. And that's a felony that carries one year to 20 years uh, in prison. But these charges that Chuck described... They weren't added to Virginia's criminal code until the 1980s, several years after the assault that Carol described. Under the law of 1976, the only crime that he could be charged with would be assault and battery, uh, which is unfortunately a class one misdemeanor that only um, carries 12 months of jail. And the distinction in Virginia between a felony and a misdemeanor is a felony, there is no statute of limitations. Ultimately, for most misdemeanors, it's only a year statute of limitations. So the, the main takeaway of all of this is that if this individual admitted in full detail today that what this woman said was true, that he did penetrate her vagina when she was 16 um, against her will, there are absolutely no criminal legal repercussions for him in the state of Virginia? In my opinion, the answer is no. Unfortunately, as much as it pains me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to say, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, yeah. I don't know who you're talking about, and it wouldn't matter if I did. Um, you know, 
if this happened in Wise County, we would, you know, Justice Lady Justice is blind. We would uh, pursue charges um, if it happened today in Wise County. But if it happened in Wise County in 1976, I would be stuck with not being able to provide justice to this young lady, and that really breaks my heart. Soon after I'd done a lot of these interviews, I opened my email to find a new message from Judge Morrison. He said that he will always deeply regret his conduct. And then he said this. I'm going to have Bishop read it for you. I have recently learned that Miss Griffin has alleged conduct by me that is not, in fact, either what happened or what was conveyed to me in some detail by Miss Griffin's mother in about 1994 when I apologized. I had not wanted to challenge Miss Griffin's recollection of events over four decades ago, either publicly or privately, but I must categorically deny these new allegations that are being made about my conduct. To be clear, I never had sexual contact with Miss Griffin while she was asleep. Respectfully, Truman Morrison. Judge Morrison was now categorically denying a key part of Carol's account. He was saying he never had, quote, sexual contact with Miss Griffin while she was asleep. That's not true, but okay. Yeah. I called Carol to share the latest response. He just, that's awful. That says a lot about him. I mean, that says a lot about him. How so? Just that he's a predator. Everybody's done bad things that that are hard to come to terms with. You know, I mean, I see it, but still, just the fact that when push came to shove and, you know, just the fact that I came forward, had to say something to him about, I don't know, just the level of just... I mean, I just can't say this what the effect of this is on a person, you know? And mm-hmm. I, it just shows me he has no fucking idea what that took from me, you know, over a lifetime. Yeah, I just, um, I wanted to ask you just to have it on tape. Um, So he is now alleging that you were not asleep uh, whenever he had sexual contact with you. And you have told me in extensive detail that you were asleep and that he penetrated your vagina with his fingers while you were asleep. So I just want to ask you, um, are you 100% sure that you were asleep? I am as sure as a person can be. I I remember it. I recounted it. Um, there's no reason for me to have made that up. You know, I categorically attest to the fact that it is true, it happened. You stand 100% by the account that you've given me. I stand 100% by my account. That is what I remember. 
you know, the only thing we have to rely on is contemporaneous reporting, basically, on my part. There were two people there who witnessed that, you know, and one of them is calling the other one a liar. And so I guess what I'm saying to him is he's lying. Mm -hmm. I'll say that categorically. I think that he is lying about that. And how ugly that is, you know, just that it should come to that is me having to just say, you know, he's a fucking liar. That's sad. That's terrible. And it's just sad, the whole situation. It's just so sad. I sent Judge Morrison a follow-up email, including a detailed list of every allegation that would be described on this podcast. The assault on the deck. The suggestion that Carol run away with him to a deserted island. Grabbing Carol under her dress on his wedding day. The touching of her buttocks in his D.C. home when his baby was in the room. I also gave him a list of the people who had gone on the record to describe what they say they knew about these allegations. And I quoted from the diary entry that Carol wrote decades ago, describing her account of the sexual assault by Truman while she was asleep. And in this email to Judge Morrison, I wrote that I wanted to fully understand the statement that he had initially sent me, in which he acknowledged sexual touching of Miss Griffin. I wrote, quote, What sexual touching are you acknowledging? Five days later, he emailed me the following response. Dear Miss Britton, As you know, I have previously acknowledged sexual touching of Carol Griffin in the 1970s. I apologized to her and to her family decades ago, and I will always deeply regret having initiated such conduct with her when she was 16 and a half years old. Given her age and my relationship of trust with Carol and her family, it was totally inappropriate, as I acknowledged to her mother when I spoke with her in the mid-1990s. From your recent email, I learned more about her allegations and her characterization of my behavior. I have not wanted to challenge Carol's description of events approximately four decades ago, either publicly or privately, even though my recollection of our interactions does differ, sometimes in significant ways. I certainly did not think that I ever forced myself on her, but the truth remains that it was wrong-headed of me to initiate any sexual contact, given her age and our age difference. In this context, I also understand that whether or not I thought my contacts were welcome is completely irrelevant. I certainly appreciate that sexual touching of any kind without clear permission is not acceptable at any age. I recently learned that Carol asserts that sexual conduct occurred on an occasion in 1976 while she was asleep. Although I long ago acknowledged sexual touching, it did not occur when Carol was asleep. I also know I did not grab her at my wedding, as she asserts. As to her allegation that I grabbed her buttocks when she subsequently visited my home to meet my newborn son, I have no recollection of doing that, and I do not believe I would have. Despite these differences in recollection, I, in no way, mean to diminish that my irresponsible behavior in the mid to late 1970s caused Carol continuing emotional distress. I will always profoundly regret my conduct and the suffering I have caused her. I appreciate you sharing these additional allegations of Carol's, of which I was not aware. However, I do not see the value in having an interview with you or continuing these exchanges. Sincerely, Truman A. Morrison III.
And that was Judge Morrison's last word to me. In the next chapter of Canary. So good to meet you. You too. I'm telling you, it's good to meet you. Yeah. But I will not try